Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we thank you for today. We thank you for this blessed day. Today is the day that you have made. We are rejoicing and we are glad in it. We thank you for who you are. We thank you for always being there for us. Being there within us through the indwelling of your Holy Spirit. We thank you for your word. It guides us every step of the way. As David wrote, your word is a light to my feet and, and a light to guide my path. Lord, we thank you for your word. That It doesn't matter where we are in our journey of faith with you, that you lead us every step of the way. You are always redeeming everything in our lives. You are always transforming everything in our lives. You are a good and loving and caring God who not only created us, but you're changing us. You're providing for us. You're protecting us. You're making us more and more into the image of your son. And we thank you for that. In Jesus' name, amen. When you think of different superheroes, you've got the famously cool ones like Batman, Sp Superman, Spider-Man, and so forth. Then there are some that make you scratch your head like Aquaman and the Tick. But, <laughs> but then there are some comic book superheroes that are just so ridiculous, you're sure the idea rooms of DC or Marvel were just a bunch of eight-year-old boys. And these are some, these, these are actual comic book superheroes who were actually drawn and published in actual comic books. First up is Bouncing Boy. The story of this, the origin story of this character was that he was a scientist's errand boy who was supposed to deliver a super plastic fluid to what was creatively called the Science Council stopped to watch a robot gladiator tournament and absent-mindedly drank said plas super plastic fluid while he watched. His superhero, his superpower was then being able to inflate and bounce harmlessly off of things. Like I said, it's something I would have come up with as an eight-year-old. Next up is this guy. Ever wish you could eat your way out of life's problems? Well, this guy can. This guy's superpower was being able to eat and digest any type of matter, no matter how strong it is. Like, for instance, rebar. But what do you name such a superhero with a power so ridiculous? How about one of the most literal names you could come up with to describe exactly who he is and what he does? I kid you not, this actual comic book character's name is Matter Eater Lad. Hey, Dad, could you pick me up the latest issue of Matter Eater Lad? Speaking of way too literal names and the character to go right along with that name, I introduce to you Dog Welder. It appears as if his name describes entirely his whole being and purpose. A man who welds and holds a dog while he does it. Not sure how this is a superhero, more than a strange combination of interests, but I guess his characters were, his creators were banking on there being some kind of market for him. Last up is my favorite, who's literally named, wait for it, Arm Fall Off Boy. That's what his actual name is. Whose sole superpower is the ability to rip off his own arm without consequence and bludgeon people with it. <laughs> 
I'm hoping this superpower is more willful, and like his name suggests, he's not just walking down the street all the time or in the grocery store in fear of his arm just falling off without warning. My two cents is that he should have been named Arm Rip-Off Boy, but I'm not sure that would have helped just how ridiculous his existence even is. I don't see how many stories could actually be written about any of these, and in reality, they probably shouldn't have been created. Thank God we have a superhero who not, is, who not only is not only the only source of our existence, but the only source of salvation for that existence, and is through whom we see and understand everything in this world and our heavenly home. We would have none of it without him. And in reality, we owe everything about who we are to him. Today we're going to be talking about all that Jesus gives to us. Beyond him hanging on the cross, dying for our sins, and rising again from the dead. We'll be talking about all that he gives to our meaning and our being. That which can't be seen, but which gives us our purpose, meaning, and strength to live for him each day, day in and day out. In short, what Jesus brought humanity was God's grace. God's grace is our everything. It's the only thing we have. And as John says in our passage this morning, it's all found in Jesus. So if you brought your Bible with you today, please turn to John chapter 1. We're going to be starting in verse 16. If you didn't, that's okay. There should be one located in the pew in front of you. Please also turn there, or you can look it up in your favorite Bible app. John chapter 1, we read this in verse 16. For of his fullness we have all received and grace upon grace. You might have read this verse several times before, and you're not sure what grace upon grace actually means. Since this seamlessly flows from what we talked about last week, God's grace revealed in Jesus was the game changer that completely changed the world. Last week, we talked about who Jesus was that was so game-changing for humanity, who he was. This week, we're talking about what Jesus did that was so game-changing. It wasn't his miracles. It wasn't his sermons. It wasn't just his death and resurrection. It was his introduction and revelation of God's grace to humanity, something that people didn't know before. God's grace, being our everything, is summed up in John describing it as Jesus giving us of his fullness. That's how John describes it. In the immediate context, the description of fullness is the fullness of God's grace. You're wondering what the fullness is. It's the fullness of God's grace. So verse 16 is telling us that we have received the fullness of God's grace through Jesus. See, God's grace starts with our salvation. But it certainly doesn't end there, not at all. God's grace starts with our salvation because of what our sin earns us and what we deserve. As the Bible says, the only thing our sin earns us is destruction. What we deserve is to simply continue on in our sin until it simply pays out death. The Bible describes two kinds of death. Physical death, which we all must pay still, and the second death. The second death is what is described as an eternal banishment from God's presence and all of that he is. Love, hope, 
peace, joy, all of it. Jesus described this place as a place of eternal physical and emotional torment or weeping and gnashing of teeth. We might want to shake our fist at heaven and yell, that isn't fair. But the real underlying problem of what sin is, is the daily predisposition to want exactly what brought sin and death into the world in the first place with the first two humans. And that's this, to want to be like God ourselves in how we live our lives. We confirm that every day in wanting to do what we want to do, in responding to something in selfish anger, in our discontentment with what we have or don't have, in what we think of other people, and in breaking God's commandments. This shouldn't be a surprise to anyone. So the fitting judgment for living out every day of our lives and taking our lives into our own hands to do with as we please and rejecting God's authority is for us to then lose those lives and receive a world that epitomizes the rejection of God. We all know deep down that this is just, no matter what we think of ourselves, because we imperfectly reflect God's characteristic of justice, punishment for evil and reward for good. So that's all we all, if left for ourselves and anything we could try to do to earn God's favor, have to look forward to. That's all we have to look forward to. That's why God's grace starts at salvation. God provided a way, one way, for us to receive his mercy and forgiveness, to be reconciled to him, and to be able to escape that judgment of hell. And it has nothing to do with anything we can do. It has only everything with us simply receiving God's gift of eternal life. That taking of that gift for ourselves is a recognition and admittance of who we are as sinners and that our sin separates us from most holy God. We take that gift by recognizing that Jesus, as God and therefore sinless, was our substitute in paying the death debt that our sin earned us. We believe that he rose again from the dead to defeat death for us, prove that he's God, and lives again to extend this gift of God's forgiveness to us. We have to ask for that forgiveness, though, by also turning away from our life ruled by sin and turning towards a life following Jesus. Following Jesus also means taking him and making him the king over the rest of our lives. When we come to God in prayer and communicate these things to him, the Bible says he promises that he will forgive us, welcome us into his family, and give us the Holy Spirit to live within us and seal us for eternity. This is where God's grace starts. But like I said, that's only the beginning. What verse 16 then describes at the end by grace upon grace is a compounding grace that follows our point of salvation. As several biblical scholars point out, this phrase means one gracious gift after another. That's what grace upon grace means. One gracious gift upon another. Another illustration to understand this is just as ocean waves never stop crashing on the seashore. It just comes one after another and never stops. 
God's grace is seen in wave after wave of continuous, undeserved gifts from him. For anyone who doesn't know whether or not we liked it, before we came to God in repentance of our sin and surrendering our lives to him based on Jesus taking our place and then rising again from the dead, we were enemies of God. Whether or not we like it, we were enemies of God. Romans 5, 8 through 11 tells us, But God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. And since we have been made right in God's sight by the blood of Christ, he will certainly save us from God's condemnation. For since our friendship with God was restored by the death of his son, while we were still his enemies, we will certainly be saved for the life of his son. So now we can rejoice in our wonderful new relationship with God because our Lord Jesus Christ has made us friends of God. We were once enemies. So any goodness that God now shows us as his adopted children is based solely on his grace and his love towards us. We don't deserve any of it. But yet, what we receive from God on a daily basis, only because Jesus restored our relationship with God, is truly grace upon grace. Every time God comes through in provision for us, every time he brings us his comfort in an unspeakably dark time, every time he heals a relationship or a physical ailment or any kind of pain, every time he gives us the strength to keep going, every time the Holy Spirit frees us from the chains of sin, addiction, or dysfunction, every time we see, respond, or process through something differently than we did years ago, every time we are filled with God's peace in the midst of emotional, living situational, or civic upheaval is yet another wave of God's grace in our lives. Now, obviously, God shows what's called common grace over humankind and that the same rain for crops falls on both those who love him and those who don't. The same common sense laws offer protection and somewhat stability from human governments to everyone under them. And life itself contains its own blessings. But if we, are, if we as believers in Jesus... Those who have put their faith and trust in what Jesus has done, looked back on our when our redeemed life began, we would see astronomically more blessing, more peace, more hope, more comfort, more provision, more purpose, more transformation, and more mercy than before. You would see it. Our entire lives from that point of salvation is wave after wave of God's grace and mercy upon us as his children. If it wasn't for that grace, we would have nothing. There are thousands of things that we even have no clue that God protected us from. No clue. And we have no clue how many spiritual battles he's been fighting right above us with his angelic warriors in the insane world every single day. We have no clue. Even the difficult, rough, and dark times in our lives is God's grace upon grace. 
God reveals in James that every trial we go through is meant to further our transformation, free us from more things, and reveal more of who God is in our lives. As God's children, we have the peace of knowing that he has his reasons for everything that happens to us, even if we never understand what those are in this life. In short, everything, and I mean everything, we have experience and look forward to is only owed to God's waves of grace upon grace in our lives. And at the end of all of it, we have eternity with him to look forward to. Isn't that awesome? As God's children, bought with the death and resurrection of Jesus, we don't even have the fear of death. Something that just debilitates so many other people in this world. Truly, we have been given the fullness of the grace of God. Indeed, wave after wave of that grace. So when scripture calls us the redeemed as truly blessed people, it's not messing around. Everything we are and have is only because of God's waves of grace upon grace, and it all starts with Jesus. Because here's the thing, and this again connects with Jesus as the game changer for the entire world and the entirety of human history. Even the law that God gave to Moses only went so far. Verse 17, for the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth were realized through Jesus Christ. Certainly there was grace and truth in the law. I mean, think about what even precipitated the giving of the law to Moses? God hearing the cries of his people in slavery and miraculously freeing them from that enslavement. Then God did not want this new nation of his two and a half million people to live without law and order. So he gave his law to Moses as both for a form of his grace and his truth in order to give his people a standard and order to live by without chaos or anarchy. The law also contained God's truth in that it revealed what he saw as just-filled ways to handle different sinful human situations. But as Paul writes, that is about as far as the law could go. For the entire theological purpose of the law was to point out how sinful people could be. It couldn't provide the solution. It just pointed out very clearly what God considered sin. It pointed out what the problem of humanity was. Sin. But all it could do was not be the solution for that sin itself, but merely point to what, or rather who, the solution would be. And in that way, the law also provided grace and truth. Signs pointing to who ultimately would give that grace and truth. The way that people were saved from judgment and received eternal life before Jesus came was for them to put their faith in the one true God and his promises. Promises which included that there would be a messianic deliverer who would come forth someday. More prophecies and revelations were given about what kind of person this deliverer would be. But all who came before Jesus could only put their trust in what God had revealed to them at those different points in human history. 
As such, Scripture says, God overlooked a lot. Again, in his grace. But all that the law gave in revealing the problem of sin was realized and fulfilled in the fullness of the source of God's grace and truth. Where the law fell short, Jesus was the solution. And so is the fullness of God's grace and truth. Jesus is the embodiment of God's grace and that he literally gave his life to allow for God's grace to be given in our lives. And not just giving his life, but think about all that he went through, suffering all the extreme torture and crucifixion that he suffered for us. And Jesus was the embodiment of God's truth when he not only summed up the entire law in two commandments, Love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, right? And love your neighbor as yourself. But he flat out said, I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. No one, no matter what their intentions are, no matter what they wish were fair, was fair, no matter what they think it is, no one can come to the Father except through me. That's it. As John has been very clear about at the very beginning of his gospel, Jesus is the embodiment of the word and wisdom of God. Through Jesus, everything was created, right down to the human soul. And Jesus is the light of the world, as John describes in verse 4, the manifestation of God's presence and wisdom to this world. Beyond that, the Holy Spirit, who is sent to us by both Jesus and the Father, reveals to us the wisdom of God found in his word and gives us the wisdom from God to know what to do in different situations. The law pointed out the problem of sin, but the solution, or God's grace and forgiveness of sin, found only in the truth of Jesus being the only way to restoration to God, was realized, as John says in verse 17, in Jesus. Jesus was not only the revelation of God's grace and truth to this fallen, broken, and evil world, but he was also the revelation of God the Father. John says that Jesus explains God the Father, the one who no man has ever seen. He says that in verse 18. No one has seen God at any time. The only begotten God who is in the bosom of the Father, he has explained him. This is both because the Father is spirit, so his essence is invisible to the human eye, but it's also a reference to fallen humanity simply not being able to handle any kind of view of the Father due to his holiness. This truth is referenced twice by Paul in his first letter to Pastor Timothy. Now to the king, eternal, immortal, invisible, the only God be honor and glory forever and ever. Amen. And... He alone can never die, and he lives in light so brilliant that no human can approach him. No human eye has ever seen him, nor ever will. All honor and power to him forever. Amen. You might have this question, though. 
What about all the instances in the Old Testament where people saw God or saw the glory of God? Isn't there some kind of something going on there? Well, John gives us insight right here in verse 18. Now, who all these people saw in the Old Testament when it says that they've seen God is that it's always been the Son or Jesus who has revealed the Father to humanity. Let me ask you this. Did Jesus just start to exist in 4 to 5 BC? No, right? Absolutely not. For John has already explained how he has always existed within the Trinity since he's God. He explains that at the verse part of of chapter 1. So when we have God walking with Adam and Eve in the garden, or God talking face to face with Abraham, or we have Jacob wrestling with God, or God giving Moses a glimpse of his glory, who is this, really? The Father? No. Who we have in these instances is the Son of God before he fully took on human nature or what is known in theology as the pre-incarnate Christ, having these interactions with these people. Even, so what this tells us is even before Jesus took on human nature, even before he, he, he started his earthly ministry, he was already revealing God to humanity thousands of years before that. How was the Son able to do this? John already answers this question in verse 18 as well. John explains it by using the phrase, in the bosom of the Father. But this is just a phrase to describe how close and intimate the Son's connection and relationship with the Father is. Has always been, continues to be, and always will be. The three members of the Trinity exist and communicate and relate to each other perfectly. It's the perfect union. Our finite human mind simply cannot fully understand how close this relationship is. In fact, the only illustration that's given for extreme intimacy is not even one for the relationship between the Father and the Son. It's Jesus and the church, right? That's the only illustration that's given in describing the intention of the closeness of a marriage relationship. All we can possibly understand is that the father's and the son's connection and relationship is perfect in every way. That it could be. Any way that it possibly could be, it's perfect. In this way, the son knows the father so well that he can reveal the father simply by revealing himself. When Jesus' disciple, Philip, asked Jesus to reveal the Father to them, what was Jesus' response? He says, have I been with you all this time, Philip, and yet you still don't know who I am? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. So, why are you asking me to show him to you? Don't you believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? The words I speak are not my own, but my Father who lives in me does, this, does his work through me. The perfect, intimate connection. And Jesus told a crowd at Hanukkah time, simply, the Father and I are one. In other words, especially in connection with 1 Timothy, the closest we as humans can ever 
get to the most holy father is Jesus. He's it. He's as close as we can get. But that's why he's, as Paul also writes to Timothy, the perfect and only mediator between God and man. As one biblical scholar points out, John wraps up this first section of his gospel, known as the prologue, this explanation of who Jesus really is, as God and all that that entails, before he launches into the earthly ministry of the same Jesus, by returning right back to what he divulges in the very first verse, that Jesus is the only begotten God. And remember what begotten means, and we'll come back to that in a second. As such, Jesus has the closest connection and relationship with the Father that could possibly exist, and that will be imperative for what, Jesus, uh, for what John will focus on in Jesus' earthly ministry that which we'll focus on as we continue through the rest of this book. Like we talked about last week, the word that has gotten, unfortunately been translated into English as begotten, thus implying a creation of Jesus by the Father, which many cults disguised as sects of Christianity have been founded upon, namely Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormons, or the so-called Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints, is really, in the Greek, this the only one in its class. That's what that word in the Greek really means. The only one in its class. Nothing can be compared to it. Nothing can be contrasted to it. It is the only one in its class. The word translated begotten is really supposed to describe one who is the most unique and incomparable one ever. For he, as God, also added human nature to his being. This was crucial to we as fallen human beings being able to be reconciled to God the Father. Both natures needed and had to exist within one person in order for him to redeem everything about who we are and be everything that we as humans need. But what John wants us to focus on right before he launches into Jesus' earthly ministry is by shoving our faces back into the truth of who Jesus really is. You see that right there. The only one in its class, God. The only God. Eternal God who also became a man. Our creator, our sustainer, the embodiment of the word and wisdom of God and the manifestation of the very presence of God living among humankind. You can't read John's gospel at face value and come to any other conclusions unless you're willfully ignoring or rejecting parts. Jesus cannot be put on the back burner of our lives. Jesus cannot be nodded at only when it's convenient for us. Jesus cannot be added to the plethora of what we think, who we are, and what we want. Jesus must be our everything. Because in reality, Jesus already is our everything. He is the beginning and the end of the grace and truth of God. 
He is the only reason and he is the only way for us to be saved from our sin, reconciled to God, and have the 100% full assurance of an eternity spent with him. He is the foundation for every gift of grace we receive from God throughout the remainder of our earthly lives. And he alone is the doorway from this life into the next. He will return for his children one day. If we die our earthly death before he returns, God's word tells us that while our physical bodies remain on earth, our souls immediately go into the presence of Jesus in heaven. And when he returns, he will raise our bodies from death and decay, reunite them with our souls, and give both us and any living believers still around brand new, glorified, perfected, and eternal bodies fit to enter heaven and inherit eternal life. Amen? Amen. But you have to accept and take for yourself the truth of who Jesus is. If you haven't yet, do so today. If you already have, what I want you to do is this. Look for, recognize, and praise God for all the waves upon waves of his grace every day, day after day after day. The next time you feel discouraged or you feel beat up or you're in a dark place, do this. A fantastic practice to get in the habit of is to hit the pause button, take a step back, and instead meditate on all the forms of grace and blessing that God has been pouring over you in your redeemed life. That will very quickly turn your focus around. That will very quickly turn your day around. And let us look forward with great anticipation his return for us doing the work he has for us to do right now. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for just these three verses, but all that it reveals to us. As we wrap up this section in, in the Gospel of John known as the prologue, I pray that we'll take all of what we learned, all of that we heard, all that we've read into our lives. We will take it into the rest of what we read in the Gospel of John, that we will make it who we are, that we would get rid of anything in our lives that tempts us, that threatens to, to uh, be the priority in our lives. We would set that aside, and we will make Jesus the priority of our lives. Jesus is already our everything. Jesus giving us the grace of God is our entire foundation. It is all we have. God's grace is all we have to stand on. And so, Lord, I pray that we would live our lives in that way. That we would live every day, day in and day out, our daily lives, based solely on the foundation of God's grace upon grace in our lives. And we would be grateful for every bit of grace that you have on us and all that Jesus is to us. Jesus is our everything. Lord, I pray that we would take that strength and that mercy and that grace in, with us into this next week. And when we're in a dark place or we feel discouraged, that we would take a step back and meditate on all the grace upon grace that you have for us. And I pray all these things in Jesus' name. Amen. As we come before the Lord's table,